Hey coconuts, welcome back to weekly Thursday market updates where we scour the net to find worthy financial news for you. This week, we have two new guests, right? Because Rakesh is away. We have Vikram, associate editor at the Straits Times, focusing on the business section. And we have a familiar face, Tim Phillip, content lead at Prosperous. We have the usual three topics. First is Singapore ABSD, um, not only focusing on the property market in Singapore, but how that could affect, you know, Singapore equities. The second one is the big headline generator for this week and probably the next few weeks, right? The US debt ceiling debate. What is it? Does it even matter? How could this affect us? We can really deep dive into the weeds on this. And lastly, it's earnings season, so we kind of have to do it. Airbnb earnings, a company which I love. Talk a bit about their earnings and now that they are free cash flow positive and more importantly, whether they are returning capital to shareholders in the correct way. Really detailed and informative episode, so stay tuned. Hey Coconuts, welcome back to another episode of TFC Weekly Market Updates with me, Anthony. Because Rakesh is away this week for whatever reason, but no worries, you know, it, to replace him, we brought more better and more distinguished people around. Today, we have with us two guests. We have Tim Phillips, who is the Head of Content and Investment Lead at Prosperous. He focuses on creating engaging educational content for millennial investors like us, hooray. And if you haven't, you know, go check him out. He's great. Um, and our second guest is Vikram. Vikram is an Associate Editor and Economics Columnist at The Straits Times. He focuses on Asian economies, you know, international finance and markets. So yeah, um, hi Vikram, hi Tim, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I want to put in a shameless plug for my site, timtalksmoneyaswell.com. Uh, go check me out. I've got a free weekly newsletter, so please do subscribe. Just wanted to put that out there before we, before we dive in. Vikram, your site? Yeah, all well. Thank you. All right. Okay. So today we have you know, three stories as usual. One, we're going to start really local, you know, Singapore ABSD, how we think it affects the property market. And especially, you know, because we are all more equity and retail focused, how it could affect stocks in the Singapore equities market, right? To the US debt ceiling, you know, it's in the news recently. Is it really just hype? Is there anything substantive behind it? I think we, we all have very different thoughts. So, you know, we'll take a step at trying to demystify that. And three, you know, back to earnings season, Airbnb, love the company. Well, not so much using it. I think the end user experience has been terrible, which hopefully they are fixing now. But, you know, Airbnb earnings, they announced and they dropped 10% the next day. So we'll look a bit at why. So first, Singapore ABSD property, which is... I don't know. Like I, I, I kind of feel like we give have cooling measures every eighteen months or so. But yeah, you know, if for people who somehow are not involved in the Singapore property market or haven't been reading the news because you don't subscribe to the Straits Times or even read Channel News Asia, Singapore private home prices have kind of gone crazy. They grew by ten and a half, ten point six percent in twenty twenty one. They grew by eight point six percent in twenty twenty two. And in the first quarter of this year, they grew by three point two percent, right? So cumulatively that's like twenty five percent in three quarter years, which for like a one point five mil property it's it's insane. So as is the norm at eleven fifty PM, the Singapore government announced, you know, more cooling measures. Um this was in on April twenty sixth. But they did this time round was really focused on, every come correct me if my characterization is wrong, of course, but I think they really, really focused on the foreigners this time, right? So if you are local, you kind of increase by 3%, which is big for maybe a 2 mil, 2.5 mil up purchase, but not a deal breaker. PRs increased by 5%, but foreigners, foreigners and entities really took the hit, right? They are new ABSD rate from their first property is 60%, which was originally 30 So this seems quite clear to me. It's, it's targeted at foreigners, maybe a bit at locals. But yeah, I, I think maybe we can restart from you. What, what are your thoughts? 
Well, the first thing is that it is amazing that Singapore's property market has behaved the way it has, even when interest rates are rising and mortgage yeah. rates are rising and economic growth is slowing down. Property prices have increased far more than economic growth or incomes. So that's yeah. a startling thing to happen. And uh, it's, this is especially after the pandemic, right? Now, yeah, I mean, it, it came as a big shock. And certainly you're right, it's uh, the measures aimed squarely at foreigners. And yes, they are a small part of the market in terms of the number of transactions. But in mm -hmm. terms of the value of transactions, it's a much larger number because they tend to buy much higher end properties in the six million plus range, right? Or they buy an entire condo tower, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So that counts as one transaction, right? So <sighs> in terms of value, it's, it's quite large. And the striking thing is that the property purchases by foreigners have gone up in the first quarter of this year. Perhaps it has something to do with Hong Kong, something to do with uh, China, something to do with China's reopening. But whatever it is, I mean, I think it's, this is something the government wanted to control because they want to prioritize the needs of Singaporeans who are hard-pressed. There are people still waiting five years for their properties. And uh, there's a supply constraint even in the private market. That's the backdrop to this. But um, I think as to what the effect on the market is going to be, I think the jury is still out, you know. The first time buyers in Singapore are not affected, right? The ABSD for them remains zero. And uh, for second buyers, buyers of second properties is a three percentage point increase, not a big deal. But for foreigners, it's a 30 percentage point increase. That's the big move here. But I think it'll have some impact. But bear in mind, uh, a lot of the foreign buyers are very high net worth individuals. They are multimillionaires and they're not very price sensitive. They don't buy in Singapore because of price. They buy in Singapore... Yep. More because of the rule of law, political stability, the safety, and so on. It's a safe place to park their assets. And Singapore's affordability, as measured by the price-to-income ratio, is still below Hong Kong, below London. And even after this big increase in ABSD, Singapore properties are still cheaper than any of those cities. So, I mean, it's, it's a safe place to Wait, park. Wait, so, sorry, that, that's for the private market as well? Yes, for oh, the okay. private market as well. Yes, it's still behind Hong Kong. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, of, fine. Yeah, uh, it's still behind Hong Kong. Still, and the, I mean, we're talking about the high-end private market, huh? So that's the yeah. that's the backdrop. So the big question is, you know, will these guys, the foreigners, just shrug off this increase in ABSD, you know, and continue buying? If that's the case, I think the government is going to jack up the ABSD even more. And there's a lot of chatter yeah. among the foreigners whether they should buy it now before the ABSD goes up any further. <laughs> I love that, you know, th these people are super rich and, and they still, you know, suffer from FOMO, which I guess is great, right? We're all human. <laughs> um, but one question that, that I had, and, and maybe you can shed some light on this, is do you get a sense that this is more a revenue increasing move by the government in a sense that they know these foreigners are going to come in anyway, they know they are relatively price insensitive, so might as well collect more tax? Or is the, you know, main aim really just to drive down the number of foreign transactions or foreign buyers, whether for optics reasons or, or otherwise? No, I don't think it's a raising move. I mean, revenue is a sort of good side effect, positive side effect. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the, the move is basically aimed at prioritizing local buyers and controlling local prices. Because remember, when prices go up, even at the high end, it trickles down. I mean, in, into the, the rest of the market. The guy who can't afford really super high-end bungalow because the prices have gone up, he buys a high-end condo. The guy then that price goes up. And the guy who can't afford the high-end condo buys a mid-level condo. That price goes up. And so on. It just trickles down the market. 
So I think the, the government wants to basically control the, the price increases throughout the market. That's the one thing. And then, of course, I think there, there's, there's an element of you don't want just hot money flowing in just for the property market, speculative activities and so on. So I think revenue, raising revenue is a side, side benefit. But it'll be quite, it'll be quite, a, quite a good one because I think, you know, these are huge rates and they are applied I mean, on very yeah. high-end properties. So. Sorry, don't you think it's just more of like, I mean, my personal view is like it's more of a statement of intent, right? I mean, 30% to 60%, it's bam, there you go, deal with that, right? Foreigners coming in to buy. But in terms of it actually having a massive impact on the local market, I'm not so sure, right? Because if you look at the data from Q1, I think about 7% of transactions were actually from foreigners in terms of volume, right? So if you're thinking about the amount of transactions that are coming through from foreigners, it's actually not that much in an, as an absolute number as the as the overall market, right? So it's more as Vikram had kind of alluded to, like higher end properties, like things that are expensive. So if you're a Chinese national who's got 100 mil, say, and you're coming into Singapore, are you going to care if it goes from like 30 to 60 percent or 30 to 80 percent? Probably not, right? I think the government has got that approach where, hey, we're going to make a statement of intent that this is aimed at money coming into the market, and the side benefit is, hey, we're going to collect it. A hell of a lot more tax as well, which is great. But if you've got a hundred mil or two hundred mil, are you really going to care if you want to get your money out of China, out of Indonesia, out of wherever? Probably not, right? You're probably going to be okay buying a condo that maybe cost five million before, but now is going to cost ten million or fifteen million. Like, yeah. if you really want to get your money out, you will get it out, and you will pay sixty percent, eighty percent, one hundred percent. If you're at the high, high, high end, I think if if you really are desperate to get your money out. I get that point, right? But I would also say that at that level, there's alternatives in that sense. And, yeah. and I guess this is where we'll, we'll get to, right? So if it really becomes too uneconomical, because these people don't want to pay unnecessary costs, right? And yeah. fine, if, if that 5 mil to 10 mil, you know, the, their marginal effect to them is nothing. But yeah. then if for 10 mil, they could get something with better IRR, for example, or they get a shop house or, or something else, they might go for that. You know, I get your point, And personally, I feel this is really... Yeah, where you're right, this is a statement of intent. This is really going to have a very limited impact on the market, anecdotally, I, I think. But to me, the statement of intent to dissuade them from even coming into the residential property. They will buy something that they want to stay in and maybe get a bit more tax from them. But you know, all the investment amounts, whether from family offices and all that, they should be flowing into productive assets. You know? So yeah. um, maybe this is the nice segue to where we think you know, the other segments of Singapore investments, which is Singapore equities, yeah. could kind of benefit from yes in a way or, or you know be, yeah. be disadvantaged by you're talking about property related equities huh? yeah i mean if you want to talk about general sti i'm, I'm happy to as well no, everything no, no, no. there's an impact you, there. you take the property i mean i think one question that arises is whether they'll shift their investments into commercial and industrial property i mean that's it's a logical deduction that if they want to park their money in singapore and residential has gone up so much because of absd then they would turn their attention to industrial and commercial. But I think as Desmond Lee had pointed out, you know, in the, in Parliament, I mean, a lot of the industrial and commercial properties are bought by companies based on business consideration. 90, 90 over percent of these properties are bought by companies. 
individuals do not buy industrial and commercial properties by and large. Maybe that will change. I don't know. But as of now, that has not happened. Residential. I mean, that's kind of trivial, right? Because if they're setting up a family office here or if they're planning to reside here to get PR, then yeah, they'll just have an SPV. That's fine, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so, I mean, individuals overwhelmingly buy residential. So now yep. the question is whether for business considerations, companies will start buying industrial properties. I mean, it's not reflected in the price of REITs. In the mm-hmm. the REITs have gone nowhere. The you know the if you look at uh, Maple Tree or you look at uh, Ascenders, I mean they're, they're basically flat. I mean even since yep. April twenty seventh, and uh, even the rest of the property market equities. You look at uh, CDL. You look at UOL. You look at uh, the other agencies, agency guys, PropNex, Property Guru, all of them have basically gone nowhere. I mean, the market has basically had a ho-hum reaction to this. So I don't think there's any any evidence of any action on the industrial side or indeed on the commercial side, on the uh, residential side. I think everything is basically flat. Maybe there's there's a wait-and-see kind of attitude, but as of now, there's no great action happening. What? This kind of surprised me is that why would anyone still be buying CDL? Like as a company, why is it still listed and appealing to anybody? <laughs> like if you have CDL and you have gotten used to the amount of regulation from the Singapore government, you would have been like, okay, this is coming. This is coming. And the business model is lumpy. It's lumpy revenue. It's the whole reason Capital Land went and turned into Capital Land Investment because they're like, this has just been an absolutely shocking return for investors. If you look at the five and 10 year chart of CDL, it's absolutely shocking. It's ugly. It's <laughs> ugly. So, I mean, if you held CDL shares, CDL shares rather for the past 10 years, I mean, it, it's bad. It's really bad, right? So, how are these companies still able to appeal to investors at this point in time is beyond me, beyond maybe the momentum. Maybe there's momentum yeah. trade when they go up. Oh, sorry. And I think CDL maybe can be seen as, you know, exactly right. Because they, they are a developer. They are, I think, Singapore's largest developer, in fact, right? That That is kind of a proxy for the Singapore residential market. So if your view is that, you know, Singapore is then constrained, property prices will only go up and to the right. Well, you know, and but you can't really afford a property because, you know, it's it's a huge chunk of money, you know, it, it might be a decent proxy, although, you know, history has not borne that out. So you know, yeah, it is something that makes sense logically, but there's a massive the data dis- doesn't support. I think there's a massive disconnect because in Hong Kong, property developers are a big part of the Hang Seng, right? And yeah. Hong Kong property, we all know is the highest. It's always at the top of the league tables. Oh, Hong Kong property is so crazy, so expensive. So property developers, you must be doing so great, right? Your share price must be booming. Look at property developer shares in Hong Kong. They are terrible. They are really, really As somebody horrible. who has backheld Hong uh, Kong land for years, uh, I will agree with you. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? It's it's like you bet, <laughs> benefit from getting lots of money from revenue, but shareholders get left empty-handed, basically. It's like it's it's, it's value destruction on, on the side of the shareholders. So yeah. I just think there's this massive disconnect. It's kind of like economic growth with yeah. stock markets. You think, oh, the faster the economic growth, the better the stock market returns must be, right? Look at you know, China's been growing for 9%, so it must be amazing. But you look at the market return, it's horrific. And it's the same with property prices. You think property prices are going skyrocketing. Oh, the developer's share prices must be following suit and going up and to the right. And in many cases, there's massive, massive value destruction. And that's the case in Hong Kong, which I've seen. And in Singapore, it doesn't surprise me to see the likes of CDL and, and UL or whatever just go nowhere and really sort of lose lose money over the past 10, 15 years and their share prices get cut in half. Really. So I, mean, I think one I think thing that's is- happening in Singapore is that there's a regulatory risk in property now. 
I think the government has pretty much demonstrated that it is not going to allow property bubbles to go beyond a point. That means I think property prices are capped here. So I think that is one thing that, that probably wasn't the case about 15, 20 years ago. But now it is definitely the case. I think they, they will have these cooling measures, what they call micro prudential policies to control property prices if they ever get out of hand. So I think their returns are capped, basically. And I think Hong Kong, yeah. basically the party is over. I mean, I think they've had their fun. I think the uh, it's, it's gone so sky high, it, it, it can only go one way and that's down. I think it's from the investment perspective for REITs, this doesn't matter. I mean, we, we've all agreed it doesn't has no impact on REITs and we've kind of seen that. So interest rates have much more of an influence on the REIT market in Singapore. But from an investment perspective, it just makes 100% sense to be in REITs longer term versus property developers. Yeah, and I guess Capital Land will tell you, well, we don't even need REITs, right? We'll just manage it and get a management fees for it, and that's our recurring revenue. So you don't even need to, to own the properties there. Um, cool. I guess I think that that's a really nice um discussion there. I think to, to sum up, you know, this is really all <laughs> much ado about nothing, at least for us, um, for for the Singapore equities market. Don't buy Singapore developers. Yeah, they're terrible. Um, don't buy Hong Kong developers as well. For that fact, they're terrible. But REITs, um, Capital N, definitely, you know, as long as they sponsor us, we'll give them a shout out. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. Now on to, I guess, more worldly matters, the US debt ceiling debate. So um, just for a bit of background for the coconuts up there, essentially in the US, there, there is a limit to how much the US government can borrow and that limit is ever increasing and every time there is going to they are going to hit that limit there is this huge debate about whether they should increase it further how much they should increase it by etc etc so that's always it currently debt limit stands at 31.4 trillion that has been hit in January, but you know they they found some loophole because hey they they are the government right and they have allowed government actions to continue. But this week and and this is all coming to a head now because Janet Yellen has come out to say that the U.S. government will begin to run out of funds as early as June first, and and that really means a few things, right? That that means that they might not be able to pay social security, um, they might not be able to pay coupon payments on their government bonds, etc. It, it is a big thing, like. You, you talk about companies defaulting on debt as, as a big deal. This is literally the US government defaulting on debt, right? And if they are not safe, who, who else is safe? So that's kind of the, the impetus behind why this debate has taken up so much news and news columns and, and news minutes. My sense of it is this is nothing, right? This is a lot of, you know, well, this is a lot of light without a lot of heat. At the end of the day, as they always do, you know, there will be an increase you know, cooler heads will prevail, there'll be an increase in the limit. You know, US will kick the can down the road and nothing much will happen. But yeah, maybe let's start with that. What what are your thoughts? I tend to agree. I think it's gonna be used as a bargaining chip by the Republicans. I mean if we go back to two thousand and eleven, and I think this is the most recent similar situation where there was a lot of brinkmanship with the with the debt ceiling in two thousand eleven, you have exactly the same same political setup that you have today, right? So you have a, a, a democratic president, you have a uh, Democratic Senate, and you have a majority, uh, Republican majority in the House, right? So this is exactly the same uh, breakdown as we have today. But as you probably and everyone is aware, it's a lot more divisive and polarized today. So it just seems like it could get go down close to the wire. Although I hope 
it doesn't. But we never know with politicians in Washington what's going to happen. But I think there is, it, there doesn't seem to be that much action in the market, right? So the market, I think, is pricing in that this is going to get solved, no issues, no problems. So it's more of a of a of a red herring potentially in terms of this could upset markets if something does go wrong. But I, I really can't see it becoming something so huge where they would actually default or that would get to that point. But although having said in 2011 they they got away maybe two or three days before they were going to run out of money yeah. at the treasury. So <laughs> maybe it's going to come a bit. It's going to come down to that similar time time frame this time. But I'm not. Yeah, I, I think the market is seems calm about it. I would say I would agree with you on the whole. I don't think it's something that we should be too concerned about unless there seems to be absolutely no progress between the two parties. But I think eventually something will get struck. I, I doubt they will take it to that extreme. Okay, I'll take a slightly yeah. slightly different contrarian position on this. I mean, your base, base, Jim is basically right. I mean, you still have a democratic government that's being held to ransom by a Republican uh, opposition. The Republicans control the House. It is much more polarized now. You also have backdrop of high interest rates. You have geopolitical tensions. You have bank instability. So these things were not there in 2011. So the circumstances are much worse today than, than they were then. Secondly, there has been some action in the markets. If you look at the one-year treasury, it's jumped. The yields has jumped massively compared to the three-year. You could argue that this is, that action is over, but consider this possibility that, you know, look, they're approaching the X date, so to speak, and there's no deal. There's no prospect of a deal. The positions are still far apart, and a treasury auction fails. Then what happens? What happens to CDS, where default swaps? What happens to short-term yields then? The unthinkable has a very low probability, but it's not zero. So I think investors have to bear that in mind. I mean, there are some research houses which are putting a 10% probability on this happening. Secondly, you don't have to actually default for there to be chaos. You just need to come close to it. The markets will go, will go bonkers even then. I mean, you have treasuries, which are the most widely held asset. They're the biggest market in the world. They are used as collateral if something serious happens to the treasury markets, which doesn't need a default, doesn't need an actual default, it just needs the threat of default. If something like that happens, you have margin calls, you have, it's unpredictable, people start speculating on what government spending is going to be cut, is it going to be military bases, is it going to be social spending, is it going to be federal employees, what is it? I think that creates so much uncertainty and the markets, the equity markets could get totally royal. I'm not saying this is a certainty or, or even a likely scenario, but it's not. The probability is not zero. And I think investors have to bear that in mind. Yeah. So, so maybe let's explore that a bit further. I think we are all agreeing that, you know, it's unlikely to happen, but I think we, we are differing on what the impacts of a dragged out debate are. Just so a few things, right? One is, you know, I think Vikram, you're absolutely right that there has been some, you know, pricing disparity in the fixed income markets. Um, CDSs have gone up. So CDS is the, the cost of insuring against default, right? So so that obviously, you know, if the cost of insurance has gone up, people are taking a view that there is like there is an increased likelihood of, of a default, even if the likelihood itself is really small. Two is, you know, I think one month treasuries, so treasuries expiring in June or July this year have had their use, you know, absolutely smashed so that's not great again another signal of you know increased probability of default not not saying it will default but increased probability right and, and i completely get your point you know that this is maybe increasing uncertainty on the markets 
as we march closer to the date, you know, just as a matter of probability, the probability increases slightly, right? Without resolution, because it's a hard deadline. So, so fine, you know, I, I kind of get all of that. I guess where I, you lost me a little bit is to me, longer, medium to longer term, this is noise, right? As long as there is no technical default, this is noise because fine, we'll have a lot of volatility, you know, along the way. Maybe markets will be depressed a little bit, but you know, if it gets resolved, then so what, right? <laughs> like it all reverts back to normal. We we go back to the world as it was, you know, two three weeks ago, rather than the the world of uncertainty. Not. Medium term is noise. I think what's happening is the short term, and that could be a buying opportunity if the markets crash in the short term because of this nonsense. Yes, I mean it could yeah. be a buying opportunity. Medium term, it might be fine. That's right, Vikram. Like you know, it's talking about this year is we've got uh, rates at, at whatever forty year highs and and recession on the horizon. This wasn't a situation in two thousand eleven, right? And in two thousand eleven, the market tanked about sixteen seventy percent in five weeks. Yeah. And so, if you had bought in that chaos, as as Vikram describes that chaos, that that process, you would have been very happy, you know, on a five ten year return basis, having bought sixteen percent down in two thousand eleven, right? But it's going to take a lot of a very strong stomach to do that this time. But there's no saying that it couldn't be a great buying opportunity if, if the market does fall 10, 15% based on this potential for a technical default or the whole process and, and the, the chaos and the brinksmanship that ensues, right? But the economic backdrop that it's happening against is very different today. So that's something also, as Victor mentioned, to, to keep in mind. But as you were saying, Anthony, I, I think it, it potentially could be just a great buying opportunity if the market does freak and it isn't really anything at the end of the day and, and something and it gets resolved. Yeah, I, I don't know, right? Like to me, the, all this feels like, yeah, sure. No, I understand, right? And when the market drops, you know, that 10, 15% or, or whatever, that will be because that it, the probability of actually reaching X date has increased by a lot. That's why the market has that reaction, right? And and that one makes and that is always what makes it very fearful and and very difficult to buy. Yeah. I think at this stage, you know, given the the breadth of the market and what's supporting this rally, we we are due for some well a, a sharp move down. Right. Um. Yeah. Just well, if you believe the voodoo and and witchcraft that is you know technicals, um, it, it really feels like there there isn't that much supporting this rally, and you know whether or not there is more uncertainty due to you know this debt ceiling debate or or something else. Right. Um. There will be a trigger that pushes the market down in in the coming you know weeks, if not you know one or two months. Right. And, and that yes. is the buying opportunity. So, so maybe let, let's take that counterfactual, right? Let's say we do reach 1st of June without a resolution. I, I guess two important questions. One is, do we actually believe or do either of you actually believe that there is going to be a payment default of the US government of its you know, government securities? I think that's one. And talking specifically about their debt obligations, right? Not about social security or paying teachers or civil servants or whatever you, um, their debt obligations. Are they going to default on that? And two is, I guess, longer term, is there a bigger problem, right? Because this debt ceiling debate will, will happen again. And well, is, is this maybe a sign that the political instability has kind of, you know, reached the, the investment world and therefore... We, we can't really look at the, the S&P as that, you know, stable 8 to 10% annual returns monster that it has been for the last um, century or so. On, the, on your first question, I think they will prioritize payment. If it comes to that, if it comes to like they're actually running, mm-hmm. really almost run out of money, they will prioritize payments. And I think they will prioritize treasury 
payments first. I think okay. if anything is cut, it'll be things only like federal government salaries, maybe expenditure on military bases, maybe that, I don't know. But the treasury payments will be prioritized. And the second question, I mean, I think, yes, I mean, it's possible that, look, people will start losing faith in first the U.S. dollar. We didn't mention the U.S. dollar, by the way. That that could also tank as the treasury market gets royal. The U.S. dollar could tank. That could push commodity prices up. That could push inflation up. That's those are another that's another set of the problems. Fed will hit that. That. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, Fed will so, hit I mean, that. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So you know th- these things can happen. The longer term, I mean, as people expect that yes, this drama is going to play out again and again. I think slowly confidence could erode in treasuries as the safest asset in the world that you can just put away and go to sleep. You can't anymore. There is a risk. I mean, that that is a risk, and I think. To get out of that, the U.S. has to come up with some kind of medium-term fiscal plan that makes sense. But this should be discussed not in the context of the debt ceiling, but in, in the context of when they discuss the budget. They should talk about that then. If this is not the time to talk about cutting spending. This is spending yeah. that's already been authorized. They should talk about cutting spending when the budget is being discussed. They've got to fix all these things. And then I think people will be a little more confident in, in the U.S. is a long-term story. I think the U.S., this whole dysfunction in Washington just seems to get worse and worse every election cycle, right? So it seems as though this is just a running sort of event that happens every couple of years or every so often that there's going to be brinksmanship, there's going to be politics, there's going to be horse, you know, horse-cut trading. And I think there's a lot of that being built into this whole song and dance in this show. And of course, the press loves to play it out, don't they? They love to play it out. And Bloomberg's and the FTs and whatever, there's, there's more stuff to write about. It's juicy, it's great, it's fun. The chairman of the Fed is playing it out. We're yeah, not as responsible well. for playing it out. <laughs> it's an ecosystem problem, Vikram. It's not you. No, no, no. It's not <laughs> no, but I'm speaking as sort of a press representative, right? It's not the press. Throughout the history of markets, there's always been something catastrophic in the U.S. This is part and parcel of the country, right? There's something happening all the time. There's there's a default in Europe. There's a Eurozone crisis. And every time we have one of these events, everyone says it's the end of the world. Everyone says, this is it. You're done. You got to get out. You just got to sell. Don't be in cash. Be in gold. No, be 100% in gold. <laughs> the world's going to end. That's, that's, what it, that's what it feels like to me every time we go through this, right? So I think it's a lot easier to think of the worst case scenario. What is the worst that can happen. It's so easy to think of that because that's just the natural instinct as a human to think the worst will happen. But what's the best that can happen? And that never really gets talked about or thought about because, I mean, Vikram, that's not like, not, not against press. I'm just saying, A, it doesn't really make news, like talking about great things in financial news. Not, not, I'm not talking about straight times or anything. I'm talking about financial news like Bloomberg, FT. What goes right and what can go right? That doesn't make good news. That doesn't make someone want to click on a news story. And that's just, that's just normal. Uh, and then B, you know, it's, this is, as I said, part of human nature to think about the worst things that will happen and that can go wrong. So being an optimist isn't isn't really that newsworthy or really isn't that exciting for you to, to talk about because it's just like, oh, okay, that's great. So you just, you, you think that everything's dandy. So I'm going to ignore you because that's not fun and that's boring. If you think it's going to go okay, I'm not saying that everyone should go out there and buy stuff now. I'm just saying Think about it from a perspective of no one knows. It's like a forecasting thing, right? It's a forecasting of economics. It's the forecasting of markets. It's the forecasting of interest rates. Interest rates will go this way. This is what, you know, the chief economist at Goldman Sachs says, okay, 
and then the next month he he amends his forecast right based on the Fed dot plot or whatever. So so no one at the end of the day really knows for certain. That's the whole point of forecasting. We are just really out there trying to t- make an educated guess. But it's a lot easier when we do forecast to be on the doomsday side of it because that feels more natural, I think, from a human perspective. That's how I feel about about how we make forecasts. I mean, it's just normal to do that, right? You don't really think, what's the best that can happen? How can we get out of this in a positive way? And and it's easy because Washington's so dysfunctional. So of course, of course you have, you're going to be cynical. I mean, that's just normal. That's natural. So I would just say to listeners, maybe just think about both sides of it, what could positively come out of it and what could negative. Obviously, Vikram's covered the negative. There's, there's a lot of negative that could come out of it. That's definitely true. And no one, I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying, think about how it could also not be so terrible in the end of the day. As you said, Anthony, maybe this is a blip. Maybe this is noise, right? Okay. I think just in terms of the debt ceiling, I think we are all aligned. There might be a bit of pain, a bit of volatility in the meantime. But hey, you know, as it stands today, um, 16th of May, in case we get it wrong, I mean, we timestamp it. Um, you know, there, there looks like a very low likelihood of anything wrong real actually happening in in the next few weeks and we we really think and hope actually that the debt ceiling will be increased again and you know things that the world can go on as per normal right because as as an investor you know my optimism is um my blindness is my superpower right so so i'm going to roll with that okay the last story and, and we're running a bit short today so you know for anything about airbnb earnings and the figures go check out tiktok We'll be recording it there. But one thing I wanted to pick up with the two of you are that, you know, one, Airbnb did decently good for earnings. Not great. Decently good as 20% revenue growth. They are finally get profitable, all of that. So they are moving on from the growth company stage. You know, they, they had really, they, they kind of cut back their forecasts, which led to that 10% drop, you know, after announcing earnings. But what I really found interesting was that, you know, now that they're profitable and all that, they are really looking at returning capital to shareholders. And they have done that by really just authorizing more buybacks and then demolishing their share count more than dividends. I mean, this is maybe a question of corporate finance, but you know, do, do you guys have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I'm not sure in terms of Airbnb's share count, is it actually going down? So I think a lot of yeah, the issues... Yeah, it is. With- so so they, they actually bought back more than they issued for, for okay. stock-based comp. That, that's which- positive. Yeah, it is amazing. I read that. I was like, "This is great. This is a well-run company." Yeah, I was. I'm not like aware of like the, the details with the buyback. So I think the positive is like you know, it, I did see it was free cash flow positive. So 1.6 billion in a quarter is amazing. I think the platform itself is, is obviously very sticky and it's doing very well in this COVID reopening period. I think the buyback scenario. I was a bit surprised that they're buying back in a stage where you know they're technically still growth. So it seems mm-hmm. a bit. I mean, I guess they're creating free cash flow, so it's it's fine. But maybe they've not seen the opportunity to put that cash to work in other areas, or they're not they're not investing heavily. Um, but I read an interesting article or an interesting comparison between Uber and Airbnb on on BFT. They're not very similar businesses, but one is very profitable, i.e., Airbnb, and one is extremely unprofitable, like you know, Uber. And it's quite funny talking about the capital expenditures, and, and I think. Uber's model and Uber's platform is more capex heavy and requires a lot more maintenance versus an Airbnb, which you know you don't require GPS and, and managing you know where drivers are and picking up uh, picking up passengers. So it seems a much more sustainable business model. But Uber yet is still valued at a higher. It's like worth more than Airbnb, I think, in terms of a, a price to EV, right? So 
it's a bit it's a bit of an odd valuation, I think, for for something like. Oh, I guess though the the counterpoint to that is that Uber has a higher TAM in that sense, right? Um. So yeah, I think companies can be a bit you know liberal with how they say what their TAM is and how you measure it. Um. So Uber, I think, maybe takes a little bit of um you know liberties with how it measures its TAM. But I think that I think that share buyback is positive news, and as long as the share count is going down, it's good. I I know that a lot of big tech companies, even today, issue a lot of shares. Google has bought back an insane amount, and I think it's only reduced its share count something like seven or seven or eight percent over the past sort of like five six years, something crazy. But you do see share repurchases done well by companies that are really super captured positive, right? Like I think Home Depot's reduced its share count about ten percent in the past five years, and Lowe's has reduced it, it's like over 20%, right? And so they do a lot of cash uh, share buybacks every, every year. And they've done, they've managed to reduce their share count like substantially. So I think when it's done right, it can be accretive to the share price. I mean, those two shares, those two stocks have done quite well over the past like five and 10 years. But I personally prefer dividends, right? That's just me. I think it's maybe... Even if the 30% we're holding? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because if it grows, it's sort of a... If you think about a dividend that grows at a compounded rate, say maybe like 20% or 25%, say you buy it today and it continues to do that. How many companies do you find in Singapore that can grow a dividend at 25%, right? So even with a 30% dividend withholding tax, your yield on costs in sort of five or 10 years is going to be way higher than buying like a DPS or a Capital Land, you know, or a cap, like a industry, which is fine. I think these serve a purpose in your portfolio from a yield perspective. But if you're younger and you have the runway to grow your dividends, if you're compounding at 25-30% and it's like regular, then in no time, the 30% dividend tax is really not going to make much of a difference to your to your dividend, I think, if you're thinking about it from like a 5 or 10 year perspective. It will make a difference in one or two years. But if you're thinking about compounding that and you think about the amount of companies in the US that can grow dividends at like 15-20-25% every year for 10-15-20 years, then it becomes a lot more digestible to, to take that. 30% withholding. Well, so. But going back to buybacks versus dividends, uh, I mean, what one is what I found quite interesting about your characterization of buybacks is this is really to offset stock-based comp, right? It's not actually reducing share count and, and returning capital dividends. You're just kind of, you know, paying the, the actual cost of operations, which is paying your employees. And so, you know, I think a traditional way of thinking about stock buybacks was that, oh yeah, the company itself thinks it's undervalued, therefore they are buying back shares. And, and kind of reducing their share count that way to kind of close that valuation gap to, to where they think it should be. I guess that's, I mean, if you are doing it as a matter of cost just to offset SBC and all that, then I guess that's not really the case anymore, right? That rationale fails. And two is, you know... Actually, there's another case, another reason for buybacks because the company doesn't have a growth, doesn't have any ideas for growth. It, wants, it doesn't have any ideas to invest for the future. And that can make shareholders happy in the short term. But I think over the long term, I mean, the comp- if the company doesn't really have or doesn't think it has a growth story, I don't think that's good for shareholders long term. You also have to consider that buybacks are sometimes reflect a lack of imagination of a CEO in terms of having a growth story for his company. Yeah, and I, mean, and I guess that the state that same you know rationale applies to dividends as well, right? And you look at all the oil majors going with their special dividends because they yeah, kind of enough. know that you know they they are in the sunset industry, you know short of pivoting and going to something new 
which might not be their forte, to be fair to them, you know, might as well return to share, capital to shareholders and shareholders can do what they like, right? If they want to support the green transition, they go and buy solar companies, you know? There, there's no need to make Chevron a solar company just, just to, well, not not return that, that capital shareholders, right? So, so I think that there's, you know, two sides to the coin there. Then I think one other point that, that I kind of wanted to touch on as well is again a bit of a regularity right like it in dividends you know if somebody cuts the dividend and, and we've seen this with Intel over the past few years and, and Disney before that it's seen as a terrible sign right um, if you have declared a certain dividend you you have to at least maintain that yield and that is you know a drag on, I think, management, um, including in Singapore, we saw that with Singtel and Starhub, where they were, you know, paying dividends more than their operating cash flow, I think, at that time. Uh, they, they were essentially paying dividends of retained earnings, right? And for, for numbers of years. And compare that to share buybacks, where, you know, it's really an authorization thing. Um, there, there isn't a use it or lose it type of mentality, right? Because your authorization lasts for a certain number of years. You don't have to finish it, right? If you don't or you find that my condition is unfavorable. So to me, buybacks give management a bit more flexibility um, in terms of their future plans uh, compared to dividends. And and that and it may be in the US context, you know, that's what they think of as being, well, better for shareholders and, and therefore be- a better vehicle to return capital to shareholders. I think it tends to be, as you said, I agree with you, Anthony, it tends to be like a, a very sort of ad hoc, program, which is authorized. If you look at the Janus Dividend Index, uh, Janus Henderson Dividend Index, which they do a quarterly index on dividends paid like over the past like 10 years or whatever. Um, if you look at the pandemic period, the only region that managed to maintain dividends throughout the whole pandemic was the US because US companies had buybacks, which they switched off or they took away and they continued to pay their dividends. The European companies, on the other hand, their yields were way too high and their dividends were not covered fully and they got smashed by the pandemic and they had to cut dividends. Same in the UK, same in Asia Pacific. I agree with Vikram, it's not always positive the way they do it, but because of the flexibility, it helps dividends on the dividend side if you can just cut back on it, as you said. You say it's authorized, then you cut back, but your dividend is protected. And these guys who are dividend aristocrats that have been paying dividends 50, 60, 70 years, they're low to cut their dividends. So they will not cut it, even if they put it up by like one or two pennies or, you know, 10 cents or whatever, they will do that. But they are fine smashing, you know, just putting aside a share buyback and just saying it's shelved and we're not using that cash to buy back. So in that respect, given U.S. companies a lot of strength for the dividend. So I'm not a huge fan of buybacks. I'm, 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 I agree with Vikram as well. I'm not a huge fan of share buybacks generally because I prefer money in my pocket as a dividend rather than share buyback because it's a very intangible effect on the share price. You don't know like where it's showing up. But from management's perspective, it does give you the flexibility, as you said, and that came through with the pandemic. It kind of became very obvious with the strength of dividends from the US. Just, just one thought on cutting dividend. What does the company do with the money it saves by cutting dividends? Does it go into executive compensation or something like that? The money that's being saved by cutting dividends, how are they using it? I mean, that's the question to ask. Well, I think it was maybe not sustainable. I think that to me yeah. was was a oh, key thing. They were sustainable in the UK, in, the, in Europe, and a lot of Asian uh, countries as well. I, I think one of the issues with, I, I mean, if I was thinking about retiring on dividend stocks, the last thing I would want is for the company I own to cut their dividend because that is something I rely on for my passive income. So 
Yeah. If you're looking at companies that can pay that dividend year after year after year, they all, a lot of them tend to be in the US because they really don't cut. There are lots of companies that don't cut. In Asia, you have companies that raise it for five years and then cut it. And then you saw Rio Tinto that, you know, they raised it a hundred percent in 2020 and then they cut it 50% this year at the beginning of this year. I'm like, are you kidding me? You raised a hundred percent last year and you're cutting it 50% this year. This is, it's like a bad joke, right? So have you not heard of a special dividend. Like, what's yeah, going on? Hey, it's not sustainable. So we're going to cut it 50%. All right. That's great. I mean, as an investor, you, you want reliability, right? You want the, the, the security of the dividend. And if a company's management is saying, I'm not able to manage the cash flows and I'm going to cut the dividend for whatever reason to save on costs or the dividend that I'm paying is not sustainable to start with. That's just poor capital management from sort of an executive team perspective. You've got to invest in your growth rather than just paying out to investors, many of whom are foreign, by the way. So, uh, I mean, that's uh, yeah. very interesting. Okay. Cool. And I think that's pretty much all we had for today. Um, any concluding thoughts before we kind of end this off? So, do not put a zero probability on disaster. That's number one. And two, if there's a disaster, it could still lead to a happy future. That is a very nice thought to end on. Thank you, Vikram. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode with me, Rakesh. And trust that you learned something today. If you enjoyed the session and want to be part of the banter, join our community Telegram group or follow us on social media. We also have a weekly newsletter to get a digest of the news we covered. To sign up, please click the description below. As always, we love your feedback. So share that with us at hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. Thanks and stay safe.